0: You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salju-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Hello spot on listeners. This is a really really enlightening episode and it's called The Untold Story of Obesity and I actually stole that title from an article that a colleague of mine had written about this and you know we often think that people are obese because they can't count calories or they're lazy or just sitting on the couch and it's all their fault but guess what? There's an untold story about obesity, and we are going to have it told today. You know, with over 70% of Americans either overweight or even obese, let's go to the streets and find out, why do you think so many Americans have problems managing their weight? A couple different reasons. One, metabolism slows down. They eat less healthy food. More unhealthy food.
1: College students tend to forget about taking care of themselves as they keep pulling all-nighters, eating unbalanced meals, and having daily late-night snacks. These are all bad habits that could contribute to obesity in the future.
0: Because there are so many bad options that are easily accessible to them. We choose convenience over health. And a lot of people will, for example, come home from work and just not feel like cooking and preparing that meal. And we'll just go out and get food somewhere else. There are so many cost-effective options when eating out and we save so much time from being in the kitchen. Some people care more about the taste of the food than its nutritional value. A lot of times, healthy food takes a lot of time and preparation.
1: Others want to save time by eating fast food or prepackaged food. The
0: consequences is that there's absolute no portion control and the food we ingest contains too much sodium, oil and preservatives. I think exercise is becoming more like a chore and people do it because they have to, not because they want to. They don't work out nearly as much and nowadays most people just aren't really active anymore. So with that, I brought in an expert, Lauren Harris Pincus. She's a registered dietitian, nutrition communicator, author. Speaker, spokesperson, and corporate consultant. She is the founder and owner of Nutrition Starring You, based in New Jersey. She's a Jersey girl, so already I just love her to pieces, where she specializes in weight management and pre diabetes. She is just sought after. She's been featured in over 500 times in major publications on the radio and podcasts, and she's a contributor to Today's Dietitian Magazine and also Nutrition and Food magazine. And this article that when I saw this, I said, this woman is coming on spot on. The name of it is called The Untold Story of Obesity. And wait until you find out the real facts about that. So with that, I want to welcome Lauren Harris-Pinkus to Spot On.
1: Oh, hi, Joan. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm excited to pick your
0: brain, baby cake. Let me tell you, (laughs) this was one- Unbelievable article. And for the spot on listeners, we are going to put this article on the spot on Facebook page, so that you can read it more in depth, because it is really, really fascinating. So let's get right to it, Lauren. You know, in your article, you said that obesity is a health issue not a matter of willpower. What did you mean by that?
1: The most frustrating thing for people with overweight and obesity. And actually I'm going to I'm going to digress for a second because the way I just said that is really important and you and I both know because we spent a beautiful 5 days in Budapest together at an amazing conference where we learned about this together actually. And Person first language is really important when it comes to the topic of overweight and obesity. So what that means is basically obesity is something you have. It's not something you are, right? So instead of saying an obese person or that person is obese, that's not really a kind and productive and appropriate way to say that. So the appropriate language would really be a person with obesity. They have it. It's actually a disease. It's not a characteristic.
0: That is a ridiculous, fabulous point. And you know, I forgot that. And that's why I'm having you on. Even though I went to this conference with this lovely lady, she remembered that and I did not. You have a person with diabetes. You have a person with heart disease, right, Lauren? And so when it comes to this, you're right. So that is an excellent, excellent first starting point.
1: And I see it written all over the previous way spoken about in the news, written even by fellow RDs, by health professionals, because it really hasn't been adopted in the mainstream yet, this first person language. And I really hope that it catches on quickly because when somebody calls you obese, it's really demeaning and degrading. And it just adds to the stigma that we're going to talk about, I'm sure, as we go along here, but it doesn't feel good. And it makes whatever health situation you're dealing with even worse. So if we can start to be kind and thoughtful about the way that we speak in the words that we choose, it's a first step towards, you know, just being more inclusive and kinder to everybody.
0: Good. Amen. That's great. Okay. So first of all, how do you define obesity? Like, what does that mean?
1: Obesity technically is diagnosed when a health professional determines that somebody has an excessive amount of fat that impairs their health. Okay. It's really not just based on your height and weight or BMI, which is what we typically use because it's sort of the simplest and easiest, but also not super accurate way of measuring a person's body fat. It's just a correlation. You know, you would need some more specific tests that a doctor could do in a lab or like a DEXA scan that can actually measure your body fat. But the problem is that with BMI, anybody who's had their BMI tested can tell you, any doctor you go to pretty much is calculating your BMI because we just automatically put it in the health record. And it doesn't tell you a whole lot about somebody's muscle mass or their bone structure or where their fat is stored you know technically we always as dietitians in the day we always joked about arnold schwarzenegger when he was a super super solid bodybuilder that if you took his bmi he would be considered having obesity because he when you compared his height to his weight but he was like solid muscle right and So BMI, again, is body mass index. Correct.
0: Okay, so you're measuring your weight in relationship to your height. Correct. What you're saying is that you could be in a category based on your weight and your height to be obese, but you're not. And, you know, a lot of college athletes will fall in that category. Like you have big big hockey players we have, you know, here on the campus, and they could fall with a BMI in, in an overweight or even a obese category. But let me tell you that they're one rock there. I mean, it's all muscle. You know, that's a great example to use an athlete that it, it's not always the best measure.
1: Right. And we're also talking about an excessive amount of fat that impairs health. It's not just a random number. So for example, if there's somebody who has a very narrow waist, but they tend to put their fat stores in their thighs and their hips, for example, that person is at the same height and weight is way less at risk of diseases related to obesity than somebody who has the same height and weight but has a much larger waist circumference and much more fat around the middle, for example. So that BMI number doesn't really tell us a whole lot without other sources of information to, to round it out and back it up.
0: So it sounds like Lori. All right, you, you can do the you can do the math and you can get it on the chart, see the BMI but really you have to have 2020 20 vision to look at the person and say like wait 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 you got this mass but well, look at you you know where you're storing it or it's mostly muscle that you're not at higher risk what i found from this article the uh, untold story of obesity that you had said that there were four main factors that play a role in the presence of obesity and the four were genetics the environment human behavior and appetite hormones, which I can't wait to get to. So let's go <laughs> through all of these. So tell me genetics, which, you know, I'm Italian. Okay. I came from mm-hmm. an Italian family. I have Italian frizzy hair. Okay. If it's humid, I like blow up and everything. So, you know, I can only do so much because I inherited this hair from my mother and father.
1: So, so there's a genetic component to being your weight. So can you tell us about that? Sure. So there are hundreds of genetic markers that can contribute to obesity risk. And when it comes down to it, the degree to which genetics play a role in obesity can vary anywhere from 40 to 70%, which is really huge. And then what happens is environmental factors can trigger it to activate. So just because you have a genetic predisposition to something doesn't mean that you're 100% guaranteed to develop that, whatever it is. So you've got the heredity factor and then environmental triggers can activate those genetic markers to make you sort of more likely to develop obesity. And then on top of it come our personal choices of how we respond to those two things.
0: All right. So that's a wild statistic, 40 to 7%. I didn't realize it was that high. So you get somebody that may have a family history of difficulty managing their weight, and then you can put them in an environment that is going to not be easy for them to live with when they have this genetic predisposition. Explain what kind of an environment that would be where like a person is at risk, what kind of environment would be
1: challenging? Let's say that you live in an environment where everyone in your family is already in a larger body, and perhaps your family has certain eating habits just for whatever, it could be any number of reasons, it could be economic reasons, it could be access to food reasons, maybe you live somewhere that doesn't have access to a whole lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. Maybe you live in a social environment where you're constantly having gatherings and tons of parties, and people are always bringing super high calorie, you know, less healthy foods around you. Maybe you take medications that might interfere with your weight. There's definitely a whole host of, of pharmaceutical things can have an impact on weight. Even down to the amount of stress that you have, inadequate sleep, we know that when you don't sleep well, there are increases in, let's say, the hormone cortisol and that can help to store fat. So there's so many things in the environment and also things that we call endocrine disruptors. So those are, you know, we don't know as much as we would like about these things, but it's not only in food, in food packaging, in food additives and preservatives, but let's say the chemicals that treat your couch. So every time you sit down And there's a little poof of air, you know, as you sit down, it could be releasing those chemicals into the air that you're inhaling. Chemicals in shampoo and conditioner, skin lotion. I mean, let's realize your skin is the largest organ in your body, right? So everything that you rub on your skin is being absorbed the same as if you licked it, pretty much. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, you talk about
0: the environment, not on your couch, but when you said that to me about your family eating habits. But, you know, suppose you're living with a stranger or a roommate, right? And your roommate has all these types of of foods in the house that are not as healthy and you want to try to eat healthy and you're surrounded by, you know, you feel like you're living in a bakery, you know what I mean? So I, I would imagine that if you can't control your environment in that way and getting the right foods, but someone else is kind of making it more challenging to live with, that I can imagine how challenging that could be.
1: Yeah, I call that the sabotage. I have tons of clients that they're really trying to do the right things and they're trying to make a lot of positive, healthy lifestyle changes. And there's at least one or two people in their house that insist on bringing in all the junk that they just... Don't want to eat, but truly just don't have the self-control to avoid when it's there.
0: Listen, when you're stressed, you call your two best friends and they are Ben and Jerry. Yeah.
1: you know It's very common. I mean, you know, we're only human, so. The human
0: behaviors that you talked about, you talked about the stress and inadequate sleep. And boy, I think we all know that when we don't get enough sleep, we are like hungry. Next day, we're eating anything that's not moving. So getting adequate sleep is good. But also, tell us a little bit about well, if you cook less and you eat out more, how is that problematic in trying to manage your weight?
1: Well, when you eat out, you don't really know exactly what you're eating, right? And they tend to be more indulgent foods when you eat out, for the most part, higher in fat, higher in sodium, higher in sugar, and larger portions. Chances are, if you were cooking for yourself at home, you're not going to make a dinner the size of your Cheesecake Factory plate, you know, in your kitchen largely most people do not do that and the truth is we also eat beyond fullness a lot of the time because it's in front of us so if you go out somewhere and you have this really large dinner plate you tend to sit there and pick at it either until it's gone or until there's not enough left that you're willing to take it home because it just sits in front of you before you know your server comes to get it and that's something that a lot of my clients have issues with that I always tell them kind of if you can remember to order like the little uh, take-home container when you order your food and say, can you please bring it out at the same time and like divvy it in half, put it away and then slowly enjoy the rest of your meal while you're sitting there. But you know, you already put aside the amount that you're going to bring home. Th- that works actually pretty well for my clients and patients, because then you don't have to have the self-control to not eat what's in front of you on the plate. And it, the interesting thing we talked about sleep is that when you don't get enough sleep, Your body can very often confuse signals. So we confuse hunger, thirst, and fatigue. When something doesn't feel right, you figure, oh, I'll just go have a snack. I'm probably hungry. It'll pick me up, make me feel better. When the truth is you might've been a little dry and needed some water, or you just really might've needed a nap because you were a little bit sleep deprived. Out of the three, we usually pick the food. I didn't realize that those
0: three went together. That's totally true. Tell me about these hormones, because I find hormonal balance and hormones and appetite hormones just fascinating. And we know we're learning more and more about these. So tell us about some hormones and sort of what triggers them and how they can work with us or against us.
1: What we learned from the two fantastic gentlemen who spoke to us on this trip to Budapest, where we learned all about this, was Uh, Dr. Gabriel Smolars and Ted Kyle, and their presentation was just fascinating. And what they told us was that overeating doesn't cause obesity, but the disease of obesity causes overeating. The point is that obesity is generally an example of physiology gone awry, not working really the way that it's supposed to. So under normal circumstances, we have hunger and fullness signals. Our hunger hormone ghrelin, tells us when we're hungry. And then our satiety hormone leptin tells us when we're full. And the problem is that when those things start to not work properly, our weight tends to go up. So for example, our body fat is supposed to signal when it's low. And when our body fat is low, it's supposed to signal us to eat so that it increases our hunger and makes us eat to increase that body fat because our bodies really don't, want to have low body fat percentages. So if you think historically, our ancestors, they didn't really know where their next meal was coming from. You know, they had to go hunt and kill something if they wanted to eat, right?
0: So there was no so, grub hub back there, right?
1: No grub hub. Your body preserved its energy stores because if you use it up too quickly, you die. The problem is that, so when we have a low body fat percentage, we want to increase that to prevent your chances of dying. When that goes awry, even though you have adequate Body fat stores, you're still getting a signal to indicate that they're low, even though they're not, which increases your hunger, increases that ghrelin, decreases the leptin that tells you you're satisfied. So you increase the eating, which increases the body fat, and it keeps going around in a circle.
0: So that basically the signals are going off. And so you have the fat mass, but the body is signaling like it doesn't have the fat mass. So you are hungry and want to eat.
1: Right. And then the flip side happens that when you actually do manage to lose weight through any number of things, whether it's decreasing your calorie intake, increasing your exercise, you know, whatever methods that you're using, our body doesn't want to give up that fat because, again, it makes us think that we're going to starve to death if we give up our fat. So we start to resist that weight loss by increasing hunger hormones and decreasing the fullness hormones. Because that's the way we're designed.
0: This, this is like a bad movie here. That's really, really challenging. So are there ways now, you know, I guess you must go with a doctor for an endocrinologist or something to get tested to figure out are things going awry and how can we fix them? Or what's happening with this?
1: The sad thing is that only 10% of people with obesity in the United States seek help from a medical professional. And that's largely because there's really no mainstream specialty to treat obesity. People go to their regular doctor, and their regular doctor kind of says, Well, not everyone, let's be fair, but a lot of doctors, they're not trained whatsoever in how to deal with obesity. They're just not. We know this from medical school curriculums. They have about 10 minutes on nutrition, and that might be a little bit snarky, but they really get very, very little training in nutrition. And I can't tell you how many doctors just say to their patients, oh, just eat less. It's not that hard. Oh, just go exercise more. It's not that hard. Or they'll say, oh, just don't eat butter or just don't eat white things or go do keto when they don't really know how to assess somebody's nutritional status. But the truth is there there are doctors who specialize in obesity medicine. You have to have shared decision-making to have any kind of respectful and complete obesity care. Okay. So that's going to involve a lot of things. It's very multifaceted. It's going to involve healthy eating. It's going to involve physical activity. You may need pharmacotherapy. You may need some drug intervention, definitely behavioral and psychological therapy, because a lot of times when people consume more than they should or they have issues with obesity or overweight, a lot of it is often emotionally triggered for sure for many, many reasons. And then it only perpetuates and gets worse. And surgery is really the last option too.
0: So it sounds like, you know, let's first find out, you know, metabolically if something's going wrong and that's a physician. And most importantly, let's find a registered dietitian nutritionist who also has a specialty in this kind of a health issue. So it's really seeking out the right supporting agents to help you with this condition. And that's what we have to remember because we're hearing a lot of something called weight
1: bias. So Lauren, can you just help me on that? What is that? So unfortunately, weight bias is pretty much the only remaining type of bias in our society that's still sort of socially acceptable. Weight bias can be either explicit or implicit. Explicit weight bias refers to like your conscious attitudes and beliefs that you have about a person or group. And in this case, that's people with overweight or obesity. And on the other hand, implicit weight bias is marked by like your unconscious attitudes and stereotypes that affect sort of your actions and decisions. And while the explicit weight biases are going down because it's sort of less socially acceptable to be outwardly biased against people, The implicit or those internal biases are actually increasing for weight, whereas they're decreasing among other categories like race or age or gender or those other things.
0: You know, that was really the reason why I wanted you on this, because we have to implicitly, if this is an issue to look at when we see someone that may have a weight problem to realize that there's a lot going on here. And it's not that they just lack willpower or don't know how to eat or are lazy, but we just found out that it could be a genetic component, an environmental component, human behavior, stress kind of opponent. And of course, now with these hormones, this is like all over the place. So I wanted you on here, and I think you did a spot on job about is to say, hey, when we see someone that maybe a little bit bigger in their body than we perceive to be healthy, just to sympathetically say, wow, there's a lot going on that may be triggering that. And I hope that people listening to this episode could say, you know, I'm not gonna stop beating myself. You're right, there is a lot going on in my life. I'm gonna seek help. I'm so excited to get you on this because I wanted to tell the untold story of obesity so that this gets out.
1: Absolutely, and the thing that people need to realize is that- by telling somebody, you're fat, you need to lose weight, has never motivated one single person to lose weight. <laughs> it doesn't help. By, by being negative, all it does is add to that stigma, and it's really particularly harmful to mental health. So that's something that we really need to work on in our society. And all of this stigma and bias, it's harming millions of individuals with obesity and making them sicker, and they're not also seeking treatment because they feel lectured and stigmatized instead of supported and helped. And we really need to turn this over. I think the last statistic I saw was 72% of our country either has overweight or obesity combined, 72%. So when almost three quarters of our population has overweight or obesity, it's no longer quote unquote normal to be a normal weight, whatever that means. It's horrible for for people who experience this on a daily basis.
0: Well, we are gonna change that right now, my dear, because now that we got out, we now know the true story of obesity and we realize that it's more than just willpower and there's multiple things going on there. And I think this is eye-opening. And we got to tell this story and keep telling this story and help one another to, to support them to go out and get the help, both medical and guidance, nutrition counseling, and even behavioral counseling, to deal with this so they can get off this vicious cycle. And I hope that this really, really helps the public and everybody that's going to listen to this to uh,
1: think a little bit, you have some weight bias? And let's clean that up. The one thing I wanted to remind people too is that most health insurances, because of the Affordable Care Act, you can now get preventive nutrition counseling for free, covered 100% usually, even if you have a deductible or those kind of plans, it's considered preventive under most of them that you can get at least a couple of visits with a registered dietitian that accepts insurance. So you have somewhere to go to start even if you don't have overweight or obesity but you really want to learn how to eat healthy and you want to make sure that you're fueling your body properly talk to one because it may be available to you at no cost
0: so you're a co-pay away for getting some help
1: yeah or not even well thank you lauren harris pincus i can't thank you enough
0: for sharing your wisdom and coming on spot on
1: thank you so much joan
0: Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our spot on Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?